You may be seated. Good morning, Three Rivers family. It is good to see you all this morning and to be together to worship our King, to rejoice in His love and mercy and encourage one another in the faith. That's what this is all part of um, our continual growth in Christlikeness and our pursuit of Him. So I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we're going to Take a little detour from Acts for a few weeks. I'll explain that in a moment, but go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at verses 1 to 16. So you can follow along on the overhead or with a copy of Scripture in front of you. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. Actually, even though it's not going to be on the overhead, um, I'm going to read up to verse 17 as well. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let's go to our great God and King, ask his help this morning. Father, we do come before you this morning with the topic of marriage in front of us. And Lord, we confess our, our great need of your help. Lord, we know that marriage has been there from the beginning. We know that marriage in a unique way reflects the gospel that we hope in. We know there are happy marriages and there are hurting marriages. There's great joy and there's also deep pain with this topic I thank you that your grace is enough. Your grace is enough to instruct us, to train us in righteousness, to guide us, to give us hope, unbroken hope in Christ. 
So Lord, have your way with us this morning. I pray that I would speak only what's true from your word. Lord, that hearts would be open, hearts would be mended and healed where that needs to happen. Um, Where forgiveness needs to be offered and extended and received. That would be accomplished by your spirit this morning. So Father, be with us this morning for the ultimate purpose of your name being given greater glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may wonder why we're stepping into 1 Corinthians 7, where that detour came in. Well, if you remember back in the summer, we took a little break and we went to Galatians. I did a mini-series, and I said at that time, if you have a really sharp memory, that we're going to do a couple of uh, mini-series where we're going to break away from Acts and we're going, to do, uh, we're going to focus on some other topic. Well, this is the second one I have planned. And in Acts 18, which is where we normally would be if we were just following from chapter 17, we come to Paul's ministry in Corinth. So there is an organic connection. Now, when Paul was in Corinth in chapter 18, verse 11, it says that Paul stayed there a year and six months, a year and a half. And what did he do? Was he discussing cultural trends or talking politics? No, it says he was teaching the word of God among them. Paul was really concerned about the discipleship of the believers there. Not just their conversions, but that they would, in other words, they would do what the Lord Jesus said they should do. Is um, Paul was doing what the Lord Jesus told him to do, go into all the world, Make disciples, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so that's what Paul is doing. For a year and a half, he's stuck with his church. He's teaching them to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Now, he also has a couple of follow-up letters. After that time, he writes to the church. He has a, he's really invested with this church at Corinth, isn't he? So much so that he takes up um, two letters of the New Testament or directed to the church at Corinth. That's tied to Paul's calling to make disciples Here's the thing, friends. Discipleship is not done in the abstract. Um, It's not something that we just hypothetically talk about discipleship. Discipleship happens in the real, concrete situations of life. Discipleship is not about escaping the reality. That's why I included verse 17. I don't know why I didn't catch that whenever I was um, putting together the order of worship earlier on this week. But only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. That's what discipleship is. It's living the life that God has called you. Not not some imaginary life that you wish you had or escaping in this um, fantasy life. It's the concrete, real life that God has called us to. And that's often seen in our marriage or our singleness, certainly our church relationships. And those are the things we're going to cover over the next few weeks. We're going to see what the Word of God says about marriage. We're going to see what the Word of God says about living as a single and what the Word of God says about living together as a church family. Those are all relationships. They're all relational categories. And we need to know how to do discipleship in those relational categories. Now, we're going to look at marriage this morning. And let me say this up front that um, it would take weeks of series to cover everything in marriage. And Paul's purpose here was not to unpack everything about marriage in 16 verses or one chapter. But there are a few key things that I, I think we need to see here. But the overall concept, the overall driving principle, both this week and in the following weeks, is this. It's glorifying God in all areas of life. 
That's the highest thing we've been called to, to glorify God in all things. It's there in verse 20 of chapter 6. If you look at the last verse before chapter 7. For you were bought with a price. You're precious, friends. You're a a precious blood-bought gift from Christ. And what's the implication of that? Therefore, so glorify God in your body. And that's in the context of Paul telling the church you need to flee sexual sin. It was rampant in the church of Corinth. I mean, there was temple prostitution. A lot of families, um, they, they would have slaves inside of the families and they would use them for sexual gratification. And this was normal. That's how people live normally. And Paul's saying, if you're in Christ, if you are a blood-bought child of God, then you need to glorify God in your body. You need to flee from all of that. This concept of glorifying God in your body, that extends to all areas of life. Actually, I think it's at the very heartbeat of this letter that Paul writes to the church of Corinth. Uh, they, they had lost direction. They were a divided church. They were a morally confused church. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And this has become, for some, a very life verse, a key verse to live out the whole life of faith. And it's this, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In our first house that we bought, we um, got one of those decor things that you stuck up and we stuck it in our kitchen. It was this very verse. And it said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And uh, my kids were used to saying, you know, the glory of God is on our wall, not in the, the physical sense. But we had a reminder that our lives exist for one single purpose, and that is the glory of God. And that's really the, the main theme this morning in this message about marriage Marriage exists for the glory of God, or glorify God in your marriage. And I say that because if I look back to, I guess it would be close to 20 years ago, whenever I got engaged to Emily, and I didn't really have an idea of what marriage is supposed to look like. You know, we did the premarital counseling, uh, did all the things that you're supposed to do to get ready for marriage. But if you would have asked me, what is the purpose of marriage There's no way I would have given you the answer to glorify God. I probably would have said to to love this person unconditionally. I would have added some things about Jesus being the center. But I don't think I would have phrased it in my marriage going forward. However many years God gives me this marriage is going to exist for his glory. It's not going to exist for, for my personal gratification or fulfillment. It exists for his glory. And that is the only thing. That's that's the only thing that that life is really ultimately about is God's glory. That needs to be our highest motivation in living. It needs to start here. So the question we're going to have over the next few weeks again is, how do we use our marriage this week? How How do we use our singleness? Because guess what? Everybody in a church at one time will be single. Everybody's born as a single and singleness. Some people are called to the singleness as a gift, we'll see. Some people um, will remain single. Some people will be single for a season and then not. So how do you use your singleness? And it actually is so different from how the world says to use your singleness. So that will be next week. And how do we use our church relationship? How do we use the church for the glory of God? How do we glorify God in our church relationship here? So today, to glorify God in your marriage. And I want to say this also up front. Obviously, this would be directed primarily to the married, but if you're not married, don't tune out, because one day you may be married. 
I wish as a single man I would have thought more about a future marriage than I did. Uh, it, was just, it wasn't on my radar. Um, and even if God calls you to a life of singleness, which is a high calling, you're also in the body of Christ called to be a brother or sister to married people, to encourage their marriages, to pray for their marriages. So even if you're not married, don't just check out. Because you're called to a fellowship, you're called to a family where a lot of your brothers and sisters do have marriages. And some of their marriages need your help, need your prayer, need your labor. I would say this to all the single people as married people, we, we need you. Uh, we, we need your support, we, we need your um, Christ-centered encouragement and how we can be better husbands and wives. So in one sense, this applies to all. Now here's the thing, uh, culturally... There is a downward trend in marriage in general. So, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2018, only 35% of men ages 25 to 34 were married. Well, if you compare that to 2005, it was 50%. So, there's certainly a downward trend in marriage. Maybe more people are just cohabitating, or people are scared of the commitment, so they don't get into any type of relationship that would would even lead that way. Um, but let's look at what the Bible has to say. Uh, because if we are going to shine the gospel light around us, then we need to know what the Bible says about marriage, how to live it best for the glory of God. Now, here's a couple of things about marriage before we get into the text of 1 Corinthians 7. The Bible does, first of all, does not oversell marriage. I'm going to be clear about that. The Bible doesn't oversell marriage. It is the best thing on earth. You'll never find anything better than marriage. Actually, the Bible is pretty realistic when it talks about the marriage relationship post-fall. After the fall in Genesis 3, we get a picture that the Bible doesn't oversell marriage. Now, obviously, there was a great bliss and harmony and unity in the first marriage before the fall, before marriage falls under the curse. So, for example, the Bible doesn't oversell marriage. Genesis 3.16, this is when God's laying out the curse, and the curse does affect marriage. If we want to know why so many marriages have problems and fall apart, it's because it's part of the curse. It's part of our rebellion against God, our Creator, is that marriages are cursed. Genesis 3.16, when God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, there's going to be friction in the marriage. There's going to be... Uh, there's, there, there's going to be a tension behind the roles, behind the leadership. Eve's not going to naturally want to submit to Adam's leadership. And Adam's going to use his leadership in ways that dominate and even abuse his wife. That's clear from Genesis 3.16. The Bible doesn't oversell marriage. Or some think this may be more humorous than anything, but there's a reality. Proverbs 21.9. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. You picture a man is better to live just alone in the house than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, the point is, is that some marriages are marked by quarrels. And uh, maybe it's from the side of the wife or it could be the husband too. He could be the one that's a nag. But the point is, is that not every marriage is going to have this, this great bliss and joy and harmony. How about 1 Corinthians 7.33 in our passage here? Paul says several things about this. Paul says that, um, I wish that all were as I am. He's a single man. Now, 
There's a good chance that Paul was married at some point. Uh, this was very typical for a Jewish man, especially a, a, um, a man that was the scholar that Paul was, the religious leader that he was, for him to be married. But we know that when he writes 1 Corinthians 7, he's not married. So whether his wife died or maybe his wife was, um, she, she left him. Maybe this was a very practical situation Paul talks about whenever one spouse leaves the believing spouse. That may have been Paul's situation. We don't know. It's speculation. But there's a good chance Paul was married. But he says that whenever you're married, look at verse 33. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. In other words, the, the, the married man, instead of worrying about one person getting sick, he's not going to worry about two people getting sick. And, or maybe ten if he has a bunch of kids, right? Um, there's this added layer of anxiety. Instead of worrying about one person's emotions, you've got to care about another person's emotions and how they're doing. You, you, you carry these extra layers of anxiety. So it's not overselling marriage. It's saying, actually, if you do get married, life is going to be more stressful, more difficult. There's going to be a greater burden. But that's, that's half of the picture here. Because it's, it's, the Bible certainly doesn't oversell marriage, but it also does not minimize the delight that marriage can be. Marriage is certainly delightful. It's a gift from God. God created good. Even though it exists in a fallen world, there's a lot of joy in it. Proverbs 5.18, probably um, very much in the context of uh, enjoying sexual intimacy, but says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's a rejoicing. There's a joy. Marriage should be, be a joyful thing under ordinary circumstances. Or Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the fleeting days of life which God has given you under the sun. In other words, life is really short. What do you do with this short life that God gives you? You enjoy life with the wife whom you love. It expects that there's love and harmony and enjoyment there. Or Ephesians 5, this would be one of the primary texts that we're, we should go to if we're going to do an extended series on marriage. But Ephesians 5, it, it presents a very idealized picture of marriage, where roles are understood, where the husband is leading the wife out of, uh, because the, the husband leads in a Christ-like way, she's able to joyfully submit to, respect that leadership. It's a self-sacrificing love that the husband does that he gives himself up for the wife, that he's not you know, some, some self-centered moron leading the family. He's actually a man who, who will serve his wife, who will go the extra mile, who will consider her needs, and um, just in the way that Christ would sacrifice and give his life up, shed his blood for the church. It's a very idealized picture that uh, it says this actually is a picture of our relationship with Christ. So there is, when there's love, sacrifice, submission, respect, Roles are rightly understood, and most importantly, the gospel of Jesus put on display. Marriage can be very delightful, and it can be used for great purposes to glorify God and be a great witness in our culture as well. Oh. 1 Corinthians 7. So where do we go from here? Well, there's just some pretty plain instruction on how to glorify God in marriage. Following on the heels of 620, glorify God in your body. Well, if you're, you're married, you're now one flesh. There's one body you share with another person, even though there's still two individuals. 
there is this oneness. How do you glorify God in this one flesh union? And we're going to look, here's the thing, nothing is earth shattering. If you have been in the church, you've heard similar sermons. This is clear teaching from God's word that he has left for all marriages, all cultures. This isn't just for the culture at Corinth. This is for us today. All ages, this present age, this secular age, this age where individualism and self-expression rule, we can learn a lot from these few short verses here in Corinthians about marriage. First of all, if we're looking at how to glorify God in our marriage, we need to see that there are traps to avoid. There are traps to avoid. We'll look at three of them. Three traps to avoid in marriage. The first trap is making too much of non-biblical wisdom. Now concerning the matters you wrote about, so obviously the Corinthians had wrote Paul and said, here are some things that we are either believing or wrestling with, or we think that this is how we should live our life. Either way, this is a quote that the Corinthians had given to Paul, and he follows up on it. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Apparently, within the Corinthian church, now, there's just so many extremes, right? People, are, we, we go to so many extremes because if you read chapter 6, the, the people that Paul's addressing in chapter 6 are way too loose with their sexuality. Like, there's no restraint. They're, they're um, sinning in great ways before the Lord. Now, in chapter 7, it's like the opposite problem. Instead of there not being enough restraint, they've put extra burdens on themselves, Apparently, some within the Corinthian church had been abstaining from sexual intimacy within their own marriages. You wonder, why would you do that? Where where would that come from? We're not exactly sure why. Um, But for whatever the reason is, this was going on. And uh, it, it probably was shaped by the culture around them. Remember last week we talked about the Stoics, the philosophical school of the Stoics, who they very much um, suppress their emotions. Some of the Stoics and Cynics and even some Jewish schools of thought viewed sexual abstinence as a means to wholeness and religious power. And we know that there were people in the church at Corinth who wanted to one-up others. They wanted to be the ones that were the most knowledgeable and the most spiritual, and they liked the showy things like that. So to be able to say, well, I abstain from sex in my marriage would maybe give that extra little bit of power or extra little bit of influence. Um, Either way, the problem is they made too much or they followed non-biblical wisdom. This isn't just a problem in the church at Corinth. We also see it came up in the church at the Colossians too. This was just a problem in the, the culture during the time and it's a similar problem in our day as well. In Colossians 2.20 to 2.23... Paul talks about these these rules that people had made, not based on biblical wisdom, but based off of what what people were saying in the culture. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. That's what's going on here. Human precept and teaching. Now notice here the futility, how these things fail. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting man-made religion and asceticism. In other words, this this over-disciplined mentality that somehow I'm going to gain a higher level of spirituality the more I discipline myself. 
the more, more I suppress any natural um, impulses and drives, especially a sexual drive, which isn't bad in itself if it's practiced in the covenant of marriage. These <clears throat> promote uh, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but notice what they can't do. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It actually doesn't curb the, the sinful appetite at all, does it? There's no way that you're going to be less tempted by adding all this man-made rules and all this non-biblical wisdom here. Now, back to the text here. Um, In verse 2, Paul says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Um, In verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may be you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So in other words, there are times that couples need to abstain, but it's not because they're following the worldly wisdom, or the, the culture, the philosophies that's saying you're going to be extra spiritual if you do this. What's the reason for abstaining? In verse 5, an extended focus on prayer. Um, yet here's the key to that. There will be mutual agreement. There's a, here we find a Greek word, it's um, ex symphonanu. You almost hear a familiar word there, symphony. From harmony, from order, from beauty. In other words, that's the idea of the marriage, is that it's like a symphony. Is that whenever a husband and wife make a decision, they do so in a united way. Because apparently, this was a... Um, Coming from the male side of the audience, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships, relations with a woman. This was, this was a one-sided thing that was happening. And um, Paul says, no, if you're going to make decisions in your marriage, it needs to be a unified and a symphony type of way. The wisdom from God's word says that marriage, into, marital intimacy is something to be enjoyed. It's a gift. It's part of what God has done in marriage to unite one man and one woman in a one flesh union. It's not something bad. It's not evil. It's not something that should be abstained from. The principle, though, behind this is to be aware of the trap of making too much of any non-biblical wisdom in regards to marriage. Because that I don't have a lot of people coming to me with this problem, (laughs) um, saying this is a real issue in our marriage. But there are hosts of other non-biblical wisdom issues that kind of get taken as gospel, that people build their marriages on, and it's not from the Word. People are tempted to go to all sorts of avenues to find marriage advice. It's It's a huge publishing industry, books on marriage. I mean, you just go to the bookstore and you find tons of books on marriage. Why? Because there's a real need there. Many marriages fall apart. Many marriages are um, in desperate need of help. There's, there's a reason why there's a decline in people even committing to marriage because they, they see maybe their parents' marriage never worked out. So there's books, blogs, podcasts. There's friends. There's Dr. Phil, right? There's all of these sources that people go to But none of them should trump God's word. 
If we're going to look at how to live our lives, if we're going to avoid traps, we need to know that God's word provides everything we need for marriage. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of him. The more we know God, the better we'll know how to be married people. So it comes down to our knowledge of God. It's a good question to ask is what forms of non-biblical marriage advice are we tempted to buy into and make an exalt in too high of a place? Trap number two is making too much of self in marriage. Now the experts say that marriage falls apart for various reasons. Some experts say communication. Others say it's finances. I remember getting premarital counseling and the uh, pastor who counseled us just kept going back to communication and finances. Communication and finances. Those are two big reasons. Um, I'm not a marriage expert at all. or you know, I'm not the guy writing a book or would know how to. But I know go to one book and you, you get what you need to know about marriage. But I do think that there's one common denominator in all marriages that fall apart. As one key element of all marriage problems, it's one short word, self. Self is the key issue, is, is, is the key problematic concept in marriage problems. Self becomes king. Self takes the throne. Again, I think you get that in verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. He says you need to be thinking about each other. Don't just be thinking about yourself. Whenever you start just thinking about yourself, the train's getting ready to derail. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see? Is there any self in this? No. You're thinking of the other person in this. Is avoiding that trap of making too much of self in marriage. This is so key in the other, if you want to know the other um, key marriage text, you have Ephesians 5, you also have 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands. It should be one of the verses that every husband has etched in his heart and has memorized. 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the weaker vessel." Because she's also an heir with you of the grace of life. And do this so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, if you treat your wife like garbage, don't expect God to hear your prayers. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? The point behind that is my marriage is not about me. If, if I'm going to learn how to be a good husband, i got to learn how to take self off the throne each day, how to live, how to dwell with my wife in an understanding way, understanding how God has created her, understanding her needs, understanding her weaknesses, that she's not, she's not a dude like me and I can't treat her like a dude, right? Sometimes husbands need to learn that really quick. You don't treat your wife like you treated all your, your other friends, all your other guy friends. She's a woman. She's wired completely differently. Um, This is all part of taking self off the throne. Not demanding that my needs are the ones that come to the surface and are the most important. And this takes a lifetime, right? I'm thankful that Jesus has said that marriage is a covenant commitment for life. Because I had a a friend, he... um, had a second marriage. His first wife 
died. He married a widower. And uh, he said, you know, my uh, second wife gets the icing. (laughs) For 30 plus years, I learned how to be a husband. I learned through a lot of mistakes, a lot of sins, a lot of areas I needed to confess. And the second marriage, um, it's the icing. This, this wife gets the icing on the cake. The cake had already been, it had taken years and years for that cake to bake. And he said that second marriage was the icing. Because he learned that self couldn't be on the throne. That was the takeaway I got from it. He learned through three decades that whenever self is on the throne, and his wife died uh, with a, a lot of suffering, her, his first wife, a lot of suffering through cancer. It's a trap that we can all fall into is whenever self takes the throne. And then thirdly, um, the third trap is very significant, very serious. And um, sadly, I think a lot of Christians don't think they'll ever fall into this trap. They're deceived. And that is making too little of temptation. Notice twice, and the main reason I think Paul writes this, the main reason he follows up with this is because he is concerned. His his greatest concern is that people won't sin. He doesn't want people to sacrifice their holiness. He doesn't want Christians to, to fall into immorality. He doesn't want Christians to compromise their purity. And so twice he mentions this. In verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, he says, because there's such a strong temptation in your flesh. The flesh is is, is the source of temptation here. Because it's so prevalent in the culture, it was so easy to either go visit the temple prostitute or to use one of your household servants for sex. This was just normal It's what your fellow neighbor Corinthian would have been doing and been talking about. He says, because there's such a huge temptation there, each man should have his own wife. But look at verse 5. Whenever Paul's talking about don't deprive yourself except for a limited time that you may pray, then come together again. And what's the reason? Look at how this, this finishes here. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. So we have two enemies. We have our own flesh, we have the world we live in that encourages us to indulge the flesh, but then we also have Satan. Satan wants to destroy every single marriage in this church. He would have a field day if he could, if every single marriage in this church was destroyed through sexual sin. We have an enemy who puts a target on us when we want to glorify God. Many of you know at least one Christian marriage that has fallen apart because of sexual sin, because sexual purity was not a priority. I mean, I vividly recall sitting in our small little apartment living room. I was um, fairly newly married with Emily in a... um, a friend being over for a holiday dinner because his wife had left him for an affair that she was pursuing. And just the blank stare on his face. Her dad was a pastor. 
He was in seminary training for ministry with me. I would have never thought that this marriage, this, these close friends of ours that we had spent a couple years of life with, that their marriage would be torn apart because Satan tempted one of them through their lack of self-control. I just, it, would have, it would have never crossed my mind. I also vividly remember that one Sunday in 1999. My memory's getting foggier the older I get, but I remember this Sunday. I can remember where I was sitting in church. The day I looked up at our senior pastor is he confessed to the church, the whole church, his involvement with a prostitute. And I just, you scratch your head and you think, how? How does this happen? How do people who, who genuinely, you, you, you see that they love the Lord, they want to serve the Lord, they're Christians who commit to Christ, they teach from the Word of God. They lead people spiritually. They lead people out of their problems. And all of a sudden they fall. Because we have an enemy who sets a lot of traps. We have an enemy who's subtle, who's a liar, and he wants to destroy people's lives. It only takes one moment. It only takes one moment of lack, self-control. We can never underestimate the power and pull of temptation. We can never underestimate the enemy who wants to destroy us. It doesn't matter how long you have walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter what capacity you serve Him. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter the the sweet, intimate seasons you've had with the Lord, the closeness that you had. Anyone can fall into the trap. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. The moment we're most vulnerable is when we think we're standing strong. When we think that it'll never happen to us. Now this, is, this marriage advice is for all. The newly married, I'm surprised sometimes you see that... <clears throat> There's temptation that's, that uh, there's a trap, there's a temptation in a new marriage. Sometimes it's decade-old marriages. Sometimes they're marriages that you think that people have celebrated four decades of being married, and all of a sudden, they fall into a trap. Here's the good news. If you have fallen into the trap, or you feel like you are about to fall into the trap, there's There's hope. Repent, turn, get out, flee. That's the word the Bible uses. Get out of the trap, flee the trap. Be like Joseph who ran out of the house. The traps may look a lot more subtle than they did in the first century. Um, No one is probably as tempted to go to a shrine prostitute in Columbia, South Carolina. But there are huge temptations to get into some hidden pattern of internet pornography. Um, there's so many traps that are still out there that, are say, that uh, our enemy, Satan, gets more clever in devising these traps. But again, there seems to be in the life of the church at all times at least one marriage, usually more than one, but at least one where 
somebody seriously entangled, seriously entangled in some trap. Too much of self, pornography is allowed in. There's been some kind of extra emotional attachment in some other relationship. Um, But friends, we're called to one thing, every Christian in here, to glorify God in our marriage by avoiding and escaping the trap. So beware of them. Realize that they're out there. But God provides by His grace and by His strength ways out. So that's the first half of our our, um, lesson in marriage this morning is avoiding the traps. Secondly, we have one Lord to follow. We're going to skip down to verse 10, starting in verse 10 and finish out to verse 16. One Lord to follow. Now, Paul says this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The second instruction is to Christian couples, and it has to do with simply staying in the marriage, keeping the vows, keeping the commitment, holding fast to what Jesus says that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Now, most likely, Christians in the first century in Corinth held a similar loose view of marriage that some hold today, they essentially had a no-fault divorce mentality, that if things just weren't working out, you can go ahead and jump ship. Divorce was so common in the culture that even the, the marriage certificates that were issued expected that you would divorce. They were written in a way that expected that you would divorce before your spouse would die. In other words, they, they wouldn't have been fond of saying, till death do us part. They would have said until you decide to divorce or something along those lines. The Bible does not portray marriage as a casual commitment, but instead as a covenant for us to keep. So we're in a culture of contracts where we sign contracts, but you can get out. I often think of our cell phone contracts, right? You sign it, but there's always a way out if you find a better carrier. They'll pay the extra, um, what are they, early termination fees so that you can come and do business with them. And sometimes people look at relationships, marriage relationships like that, is that it's just a contract and there's a way out. But the Bible presents marriage as a covenant, a covenant, and it reflects God as a faithful promise-keeping God, and he expects his people to do the same. Christopher Ashe has written a book called Married for God. It's a short book, probably one of the most God-centered books on marriage, where it's what I would have needed to, it's what I should have read when I was 20, but it wasn't written at that time, whenever I was getting ready to get married, how marriage exists for God, for his glory. And the, the more we take self out of it, the more we understand the true purpose of it. And he says this, Faithfulness is the heart of marriage because it is the heart of God. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage. If you want to know what is the heartbeat of a marriage, it's faithfulness. Notice it's not love. That's what most would say today is the glue that keeps marriage together. It's love. The problem with that is people fall in love and they fall out of love. People sometimes will say, I love you, and they'll next follow up maybe sometime later with words, I just don't love you anymore. And all of a sudden, the marriage is done. That's not the picture of the marriage commitment in the Bible. It's faithfulness. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6 says that faithfulness has been a rare thing. It's a rare commodity. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. 
Many people say that they're faithfully committed, but who actually goes through with their promise-keeping commitments? So Paul brings us into the marriage commitment in verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this charge. He's thinking about two Christian couples because he, the next section here in verse 12, he talks about those with a mixed marriage, a religiously mixed marriage. But he's talking about two Christians here, two people who would submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's key here. This teaching is not mere advice. It is what the Lord Jesus commands. And it's very simple and straightforward. The wife should not separate from her husband. And let's not think of the, the modern um, understanding of separation. Some people will separate without getting a divorce. What is in mind here is a divorce. It's another way of describing a divorce. I think it's the same thing that Paul says that the husband should not divorce his wife in the latter part of verse 11 here. <clears throat> what does Paul do though? He appeals to the Lord Jesus. Rarely does he do this. Rarely does Paul bring the ethical weight of what Jesus says into the discussion. But he does here. The command is straightforward enough that Christian married couples are not to seek to divorce one another. Yet there's a broader principle at work here. Why? Why do Christian couples, should they not initiate a divorce with one another It's because Jesus is the main authority in the marriage. This is the biggest game changer. Is when I realize that I'm not the main authority in my marriage, but Christ is. And I realize the second thing is what Jesus says, if we love him, we will obey what he commands. We won't take it as a mere advice or a suggestion from a friend if we're Christians, our marriages, is not, they're not ours. They're Christ. My marriage is a product of the Lord Jesus. They're not autonomous. They exist for Him. My marriage is a gift to be used for Christ's glory, so I better listen to what He says about it. I had an eye-opening experience in my early in my first church that... Um, showed me how naive and green I really was. So I go to my first church, and I'm, I'm really optimistic. I'm thinking that everybody is going to automatically just do what Jesus says. That's pretty much what Christians are called to do. You uh, obey Jesus, what he says. And um, <clears throat> I was surprised to find that that just wasn't true. <laughs> that people who believed in Jesus and said they were following him didn't always want to do what he said didn't see Jesus as the highest authority in their life. So it was late one Saturday night. I thought I was going to get to bed, get a good night's sleep for worship the next day. And one of our church members, she was distraught, distressed, and called and asked if she could come over our house. We said, sure. Kids were already in bed. And this woman just unloads. She unloads all of her problems, all of her troubles that are all marital related and then she says this through tears and you know we're trying to listen to her and sympathize and pray and encourage her but she says this I think I'm going to leave my husband I think I need to leave him and I asked her said do you have any biblical grounds for that well here was her response 
My Christian counselor said it's the right thing to do. The word of God wasn't part of the discussion at that point. Why? Because she found her highest authority. And that's the point. We all go to some place. We go to someone as our highest authority. 1 Corinthians 7.10 To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And even when Paul does, in verse 12, give his own uh, perspective and his own commands, he's still functioning as an apostle who's been sent by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to these churches. Do you see, this is the biggest issue, is Jesus the main authority of your life? And here is a situation where I realize that, no, a counselor had become the main authority in someone else's life. Friends, we don't follow our feelings as our main authority. We don't follow the mere marriage advice from others as the main authority. We have one authority. And it's Jesus, the one who instituted marriage and all marriage exists for. We follow the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to confess him as our Lord. And his statement on marriage is pretty straightforward. Mark 10, 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' own teaching sets the bar very high. Marriage, by his command, is meant for life. He doesn't expect half the people to enter into it and for it just to disappear. <clears throat> Finally, there is an instruction for the rest. We just have to summarize it in verses 12 to 16. If there is a religiously mixed marriage, Paul says, you know what? If that unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, you need to stay in. Why? Again, because faithfulness is at the heart of marriage because it is at the heart of God. And there is a gospel influence, there's a godly influence that comes within this family. That's why he goes on to say that if the unbelieving um, husband is made holy because of the wife, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And you know, it sounds kind of strange, but what I think the point and the principle is that there is a holy influence now in that family if you stay. If you leave, that holy influence isn't there. The holy influence isn't there for the children. But if you stay, it is there. And there's a great possibility in verse 16 for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? You may be the avenue. <clears throat> you, you, you may be the very instrument that leads to this person's salvation. So don't give up hope. Stay in the marriage. Now there is one <clears throat> exception in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, there's sometimes there's a brokenness that's beyond repair. And Paul recognizes that. The Bible recognizes there's hard-heartedness, there's unfaithfulness, there's brokenness in the world. And it sometimes hits marriages. There's some here, you have been through a broken marriage. It's painful. And the Bible recognizes that it happens in this broken, fallen world. <clears throat> we don't have time to get into the divorce and remarriage question. Um, I hope to tackle that at some point later. Um, obviously, there are elders here at this church who 
love you all, love the Word of God, are happy to talk through these things, look at the Scripture. <clears throat> I would... Um, I have way more in my notes than I can cover here, and we need to start to land the plane. Um, I do want to say this. The Bible never requires or demands divorce. Um, again, there's not enough time for me to go through the various views. There's uh, <clears throat> various views of some hold a permanence view, some hold the what's called a traditional view is there's a couple of exceptions. That's um, sexual sin in the marriage, adultery, and also abandonment here. I would add that the Bible never requires or demands divorce. Even if you hold to the majority view that there are certain exceptions, the Bible never demands it. I know of couples where there were biblical grounds for divorce, according to my understanding, where the marriage covenant has been broken, yet the one spouse was so committed to the gospel and showing that in the marriage that they extended forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's the heart of God. God's heart is always bending toward reconciliation. I'd always urge attempts at reconciliation if all possible. Think of us. We are by nature covenant breakers, aren't we? But God in his rich forbearance, his rich mercy forgives us and receives us. He reconciles us through Christ. The message of Hosea in the Old Testament reminds us that God welcomes the unfaithful back. That's the heart of God, isn't it? I only say that because... I think some people will sometimes look at divorce as the only option or the option they must pursue. When the gospel, the gospel gives hope, the gospel reconciles, the gospel keeps the door open. Well, as we conclude, um, Al Mohler said this in his book, The Gathering Storm, the ultimate purpose of marriage is the greater glory of God. The greater glory of God. That's great, isn't it? Do I get an amen there? The ultimate purpose of marriage is the greater glory of God. But many don't have that experience. There's a lot of marriages right now you say, I can't see how the ultimate purpose in my marriage is the greater glory of God. My marriage seems like it's broken beyond repair. It's a great ideal. It's a great standard, isn't it? After almost two decades of marriage... I don't see myself as anywhere near the husband of the year who would get that award. You know what I see myself as? A sinner who daily, desperately needs God's grace. That's where I'm at with regard to my marriage. I love my wife. I'm so thankful for her. Um, I don't deserve her. I realize that more and more. I'm very happy and satisfied with the wife that God has given me. But when I come and look at my marriage, I realize how much of a sinner I really am. And what does that do? Well, the same Lord we follow, 
The same Lord who puts really high demands and sets the bar really high for marriage is the same Lord that we get forgiveness and grace from. And that's where many of us need to go today, to the foot of the cross, to that cross. There's no way to follow the Lord in marriage if we haven't first followed him to the cross, begging for his mercy and grace, receiving the power, receiving the ability to honor him with our marriage. Glorifying God in marriage begins first by falling at the feet of Jesus and pleading with him for his abundant grace. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, there's so much more that could be said, and I pray that your word would continue to do a work in our heart. Help us to recognize the the great traps that are out there with regard to our marriage. That any of us, if we're not guarded, could fall. Lord, help us to encourage one another to avoid the temptations and the traps that surround marriage. And Lord, give us a great zeal, a great commitment to our one Lord and His commands. Lord, where there needs to be a renewal of grace in our hearts where there needs to be fresh forgiveness and fresh mercy, would you please, Lord, draw us to the cross, draw us to our great Savior who died for a bride, who shed his blood as the great groom who pursues a bride who hasn't been faithful, but washes her, cleanses her, gives her hope and the promise of joyful bliss forever. It's in his name we hope and pray. Amen. All right, church family, as we, as we close out our time this morning, um, I'm again reminded of uh, this letter of Corinthians as a whole. And uh, let's all stand together to hear God's parting words. God has called us to live a life of faithfulness to Christ. And... Um, I just want to remind us through the very first, uh, very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 to continue serving him. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor of love for him is not in vain. Go in his grace and power this week, friends. You're just dismissed.